0: Talofalava, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susama Suzuki Coming up.
1: Saying no, we don't want to change. This is what we want in terms of the Minister
2: of Affairs.
0: Standoff over ministerial roles in Tonga continues. Also, in our Tala segment, we learned all about digitizing Tapa and later.
2: It was
3: uh, time for rehabilitating all cocoa If Efforts
0: are being made to restore cocoa farming in PNG's Sepik region. The stalemate remains in Tonga after an announcement last week from the Privy Council that King Tupou VI was withdrawing confidence in the Minister of Foreign Affairs and Minister of Defence. But the government, through Acting Prime Minister Samuel Waipulu announced, its advice was the decision as to who occupies ministries is not the King's to make, but rather the government's. For this reason, he said the government was maintaining its appointments in the ministries. Don Wiseman asked our correspondent in Tonga, Galafi Muala, to shed some light on the standoff.
1: The public attitude here seems like they really like the fact that the government is saying, no, we don't want to change, this is what we want in terms of the Minister of Foreign Affairs. I I think the, the, the situation here provides a very wonderful scenario to get these things sorted out. The power of the king, how limiting it is, what is constitutional in terms of what the king has to decide in a full war and what the Prime Minister and the Cabinet. So that's where we are right now. He he ain't talking about both the Allies' Office as well as the Prime Minister's Office. It's still a very strong standoff. The Prime Minister's Office have indicated they're not going to bend because they have received advice that what has been suggested from the Privy Council is unconstitutional.
2: It's interesting to see someone like Samu Vaipolu uh, so strongly going with the government line when he's been someone over the years who has been very, very pro-king, hasn't he?
1: That's correct, yeah. I think, done one of the things that's in tongue, I think the general attitude, whichever side you are politically, is the fact that in 2010, there was a reform, a constitutional reform. And even though our democracy here is still kind of very fragile, in many ways we don't know where to go, we still have to work at it. And there's no way of going back to the system as it was before. So we have to sort things out now and go forward from here on. That's the kind of what I get from the
2: public attitude. Yes, one of the critical things that happened during Akalisi Pohiva's period in power and his signing, I think it was, of the PASA Plus Agreement, and there was an outcry from the nobility over that, because it didn't yes. have the king's assent. But right. I think Tonga at that point withdrew and is now back in there, of course. But That's correct. this is the same issue, essentially, isn't it?
1: Yes. Yeah. Well, the outcry against space Plus was because in the constitution treaties and international agreements must have the king's approval and i think that that was the reaction from the palace office then although after the p- a period they began to realize that agreeing to pay plus was a good thing and so they kind of reversed their stand. but that was the reason because in the constitution it said the king must approve all treaties internationally and agreements
2: so as far as foreign affairs goes The government is maintaining its ministry, headed by Fakita Utoi Kamanu, and it has its own secretary, Secretary of Foreign Affairs. But there's also a Secretary of Foreign Affairs uh, within the nobility. Does this mean that Tonga is maintaining two separate offices and paying two lots of wages for people to do this?
1: Well, that's a probability. is what probably is happening. But you see, this part of the way we have to really, or at least those in power need to sit down, work out these processes where they're going, moving forward, rather than pulling in every direction to try to exert who is more powerful. That's where we are right now. And I think it's going to be sorted out. Traditionally, of course, what happens with foreign affairs The king has always been the one that opened doors in terms of relations with other countries, like we did with China, Saudi Arabia, and some other countries. Now, of course, in a more democratic tone, the cabinet wants to be the main one involved in relations with overseas. I think that we're going to end up with the decision-making is going to come from the cabinet, but then they're going to be consulting the king so that the king can continue his role traditionally in, in being a head of state that opens stores to other countries.
0: Over in Wellington at the Te Papa Museum where the imaging and collections team are spending the next few weeks photographing numerous large tapa cloths for an upcoming publication. The digitising process of tapa, which have come from all over the Pacific, is a delicate and time-consuming project, but the benefits include accessibility and preservation. Joining me to talk about the tapa digitization project are Te Papa Museum's collection imaging managers, Michael O'Neill and Grace Hutton. Kia ora to you both. Can you briefly explain what the project
4: is all about, please? The project is... Uh... Was, initially, was initiated by um, a publication uh, uh, for Te Papa Press that's coming up in about um, a year, so will be in the Christmas hamper for next year. Uh, so they are after uh, 100 tapa to be shot for the book itself, and the last time they were shot was probably over 20 years ago, um, and so that's why we're reshooting them all to really high qualities for um, two purposes, that book uh, and for our collections online.
0: How long will this project take? When will you complete the entire process?
4: Uh, so the shooting itself is going to be four weeks, um, and then there's post-production for us, and that's another probably couple of weeks. So it'll take us around six weeks to shoot uh, approximately 100 uh, topper. Um The truth is, behind all of that, the actual uh rolling and unrolling and the care that's required to give the collections is probably the bigger part of the actual equation by the time we've set ourselves up for the shooting um we can shoot a, a topper itself in um 15 minutes for example but it takes longer to actually retrieve it from the collection store to roll and unroll it and get it ready um and just do general um collection care while we're at it like we remeasure we check um uh, condition of the objects, et cetera. And that's that probably, you know, it's an equally important part of the process. Because the uh, tupper is so big, uh, we can't shoot them in a single image. So we have to um, approach it in what we call an XY uh, digitization process, where we take multiple images of an object. And to do this, we have to actually build what we call a gantry or a metal framework over the tupper itself that's on wheels And this holds the camera about two metres off the tupper itself. And then the camera slides back and forth between the stands either side of the tupper. And then we'll take a row of images, which might be, as I say, five or six. And then we'll move the whole stands, the whole framework or gantry down um, a smidge. And then we'll take another row. And we'll do that until we've finished um, the... The whole tupper itself so for the natu that we shot last year i think we shot about 75 images um, for a single um, natu uh, and then we stitched that all together in bespoke software uh, which generates one super high res image and as i say, the quality and size of these files is something outside of the ordinary it's really pushing the boundaries of um, technical capabilities of our software internally etc but it's um extremely rewarding but it's also a kind of a do it once do it right approach
5: and it's where we need more people not just me <laughs> so I have an intern at the moment who's helping and Mike has a team of um, two other three other photographers that can also help to for me to um, roll and unroll because without them it'd be some of the big Tupper that we have I can't remember the size of the biggest one we had so far, but it's too hard to do by myself.
0: Why was there a need to digitise the tapa and put it towards a publication?
4: Uh, so that, that's scholarship first and foremost, and we've got curators who want to um, write about tapa, about the history of it, about the process, the identity of it, you know, why it's used, you know, the value of tupper, etc. So scholarship drives a lot of what we do. Uh, and then behind that, we want to digitise things. Uh, so we, we, Focus on putting out high-end publications, so we try and get the best images we possibly can for it. Um, And then uh, we also focus. So the 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 double the bonus of this is that we get to release these images to collections online. And the way that we image them now is we um, we image them in sections, uh, so we don't image the whole tupper in one hit. We take small chunks of of the tupper, so we might take thirty or forty images of a single tupper and then we stitch them together so that we've got a super high-res zoomable images on our collections online, um, which is actually, um, you can almost see more in that than you can with the naked eye. So um, when they're available in collections online, you'll be able to zoom into the level of the uh, the uh, threads itself. You'll be able to see the makeup of the tupper. Um, so that helps all kinds of you know researchers, um, again, scholarship, um, and just make the public. Uh, able to access collections, which they just can't. Generally, I mean, these things are wrapped up, um, tucked away nicely in our collection store, and they um, they don't come out very often. As you'll know, that uh, there's only ever a small percentage of our collections ever on display.
0: Just while we're still on that topic, I mean, how do you ensure that this particular project doesn't diminish the value of seeing or holding the tupper physically?
4: That's a very good question.
0: <laughs> do
4: you want to go, Grace?
5: I, I don't think it does and and of course we will always get researchers wanting to come and see the real thing and that's, we do make them available, but for example we have a 25 metre long, 6 metre wide uh, Natu that is just too big to bring out for researchers, so these ones that we can are doing are available to be accessed much easier, and, and if they can't, we will certainly let um, researchers know. Um, next week, there is a researcher coming in wanting to see Tapa uh, Natu from Tonga, and I'll be able to, with help, bring out two of the rolls, two two metre long rolls, so that she can actually see the um,
4: Natu. So, so that's the reality. There is that some of the ones that we have shot. Um, Grace is alluding to a project we did this time last year where we shot uh, extra long uh, too so up to 27 metres long, they're just not visible very often. I mean, they don't come out onto the floor very often at all, and you just can't unroll those sort of things. So this is the only way for the public to see them on an on a, uh, accessible basis.
0: An official with the United Nations Body, the Food and Agriculture Organization, says real progress is being made in efforts to restore cocoa farming in the Sepik region of Papua New Guinea. Cocoa was once the leading cash crop in the region, but production had fallen away for a number of reasons. Ismail Gah, who is a cocoa production officer, told Don Wiseman about the progress made. He began by explaining how the crop
3: went into a decline. It goes back before the independence, before 1975. It was the major gas crop that was farmed uh, by the uh, rural uh, farming population here
2: in the uh, Cipic region. Okay, so why did it lose ground?
3: There are a number of factors, in particular the cocoa disease. Cocoa pod borer, a disease uh, sought as uh, CPB. Uh, it was a disease where the pods become unripened, immature at uh, early stages. And it has affected, declined the production of the cocoa pots. An outbreak started in 2006 in Papua New Guinea, in one of the provinces in the islands. Later spread to other cocoa-producing provinces, and Isipik was also uh, impacted with that disease. As early as 2010, 11, 12, uh, the disease spread out in the Isipik region. Uh, that's one factor. Another one is the old ageing cocoa trees, tree senility. That is the old ageing trees we not able to perform now to produce economic cocoa. And it was uh, time for rehabilitating or replanting it with new clone seedlings or cocoa seedlings.
2: The work that the FAO is doing there, you've been doing a lot been going on for a fair while hasn't it what are you yes
3: yes we are already since program started with the local government partners here uh, the png cocoa board we started to work with the cocoa board to address the issues existing and we conducted uh, cocoa trainings to cocoa farmers first of all in applying best practice cocoa management in their cocoa blocks first to maintain or rehabilitate their existing cocoa trees we also are setting up cocoa nurseries, assisting the cocoa cooperative groups in setting up their cocoa nurseries by supplying them with necessary materials and propagating their seedlings. Uh, we have trained them also on proper nursery techniques and skills in cocoa propagation. And now they are already, since 2020 till now, uh, This considerable amount of seedlings have been planted at the respective cooperative groups from the NSRS.
2: So what sort of progress do you think you're making? Is there any way that cocoa can again become the leading cash crop for farmers? In the CPIC.
3: Yes, the program was supported with 2 million plus uh, seedlings planted across the uh, farmers in the CPIC region. And with their training, they will be able to maintain as well their existing. And now the farmers are reaping the rewards. Uh, some cooperatives have already been connected to some exporters or buyers in terms of uh, short contract uh, marketing. So that is promising with the cooperative groups currently.
2: Do you think it can become Uh, the leading cash crop. Yes, I strongly believe
3: cocoa is a game changer in the lives of the rural population just because they can farm it on a household level and where women and children are involved, especially they can benefit from the income in terms of buying school fees, also engaged in reduced unemployment as well. It can become a leading cash crop because uh, on a hectare, it can hand them roughly 7,000 kina per ton. And that is uh, proven that the cocoa can give them that per hectare monetary value of 7,000 kina per, and judging by the land which is owned by the people, they can expand their blocks or cocoa hectares and then a higher income as well.
2: I have uh, had some discussions with the cocoa ambassador, who is a New Zealand-based woman who has done a lot of work in Solomon Islands and in Bougainville, helping the cocoa farmers to appreciate what cocoa is because they weren't using it. She felt that they didn't understand the product. So she had them milling the cocoa and making Milo and, of course, making chocolate. So what's happening in CPIC? Do people understand what they've got with cocoa and how it's prized around the world?
3: Conventionally, the cocoa growers have been selling it as a bulk uh, in bags to middlemen's uh, cocoa exporters. But already some trial because of the quality standard from the processes, the program, we are working with some progressive uh, cooperative groups in getting their samples to uh, good uh, exporters or processors and testing it out and trying to sell on a small amount uh, basis to fetch a higher price. So that is uh, what the growers have been uh, doing, especially those uh, that are already progressing into that arena of contract marketing cocoa. But for the whole cocoa farmers, they are still under Sales of bulk market to middlemen. We are working with uh, small buyers, our uh, processes to go to da- as far as downstream as well with the cooperative groups here.
2: Okay. My earlier question was are they actually using the cocoa themselves? Not
3: on a large scale. There are just a few small uh, entrepreneurs that are doing it.
0: That's Pacific Waves for today. To listen back, head over to rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Spotify, Apple, and iHeartRadio. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, till Fastway 4.